Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to PerfWeb 75 Day 2. I am your host today, Tammy Sparacino. Um, we do have Joe Basha that will be joining us to do his presentation on CRRT from an off-site location. So let's go ahead and get started. Joe, welcome on. Hey, everyone. Hi, Tammy. Hey, how are you? Hey, I'm, you know, it's really sad. We did all that work putting that new studio together, and uh, and I haven't I haven't had a chance to do a program from it yet. I know. Look at all the great lighting. I'm sure I look great, right? You do actually. I'm really impressed with uh, with with what a great job that uh, David and Magic uh, did on putting that studio together. It looks really really good. And your program yesterday was excellent as well, talking about the cytosorb. Um, I have yeah. a little bit about that today, very oh, small good. amount, but I think that CRRT and the other modalities for managing inflammatory mediators um, uh, marry together fairly well. Uh, although I think that they're both very different technologies, I think that there's some, uh, some crossover there, at least that's my view. Absolutely. Well, we are looking forward to hearing more about CRRT. Okay, very good. So apparently you're ready for me to get started. I am. You look good. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I know you have been, you've been a little under the weather. Thanks for filling in for me while I've been gone. I do appreciate it a lot. Absolutely. So for those of you that are just joining, um, uh, you know, we, we have retooled the studio and we haven't even yet had the opportunity to really highlight it. Uh, Friday is going to be a really good day. I did want to bring that up in advance um, because Friday we're going to have uh, the uh, – the simulation session. And uh, I think you're really going to be very pleased with how well that has all come together and the tech, the, what we're able to do to simulate. Because I think ECMO is, you know, we could talk about ECMO forever. You know, you could have this, you could talk about the same subject over and over again and never really cover every aspect of it or things are always changing or something new comes up. It's just really, it's an endless uh, topic. Uh, but I think simulating things and being able to see the interrelationships between the technology, the hemodynamic monitor, the ventilator, all of those things, um, I think it's going to be very, uh, very uh, uh, informative. And I'm very happy that we, we've, we've invested in this uh, project the way we have. I think people will be pleased. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. You can throw my slides up. I'll get started. So, um, so CRRT, ultrafiltration, hemofiltration, modified ultrafiltration, known as MUF, SCUF, which is sustained or slow continuous ultrafiltration, CVVH, continuous veno-veno hemofiltration, CVVHD, continuous veno-veno hemodiafiltration, and uh, our diet, I'm sorry, continuous veno-veno hemodialysis, forgive me, and then uh, CVVHDF, continuous veno-veno hemodiafiltration. What does all of this mean? Well, first, let's just focus on what's the point of doing any of these therapeutic modalities, and that is to create an environment of homeostasis. 
And of course, homeostasis is basically a balance, a neutrality, a, uh, a, a multiple organ systems or uh, dependent systems, interdependent systems that create an environment of homogeneity. It's very, it's balanced. It's working in harmony with each other. So homeostasis is something that we as human beings are, and, and any, 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 any creature actually, any biological creature has to have a state of homeostasis to survive. When that's out of whack is when these different therapeutic modalities come into play. So let's, uh, oh, next, I can't do this slide myself, I'm sorry. So what is CRRT? Well, it's an umbrella term. CRRT is continuous renal replacement therapy. And one of the things that has always bothered me over the years is that it's been called CRRT, which implies that it is really just dialysis, continuous renal replacement therapy. But as you just saw, just all of the various acronyms that I went through, every single one of them is some form of CRRT. I just think CRRT is the wrong uh, term, the wrong the wrong acronym. Uh, but it's an umbrella term used to describe a variety of therapeutic modalities used to treat renal insufficiency, fluid overload, electrolyte and acid-based disturbances, removal of metabolites, and to some degree, removal of inflammatory mediators. So, you know, clearly you can see why, I guess, this became a dialysis thought of uh, a process, but you're going to find that it's it's not that at all. Um, although we'll talk about the who is really I think recognized as the father of uh, uh, modern CVBH, CRRT, whatever you want to call it. Uh, 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 Dr. Ronco, I'll introduce you to him uh, uh, via some of his slides and a photograph. Um, uh, really is the, I think, recognizes the father of this treatment modality. Next slide. So the whole point of renal replacement therapy, continuous renal replacement therapy, using a CRRT type model versus intermittent dialysis, which is also a form of CRRT, and we'll discuss the differences in all of these as we move forward, is basically in clearance. If you look at this, you see the green line, which reflects what dialysis can remove or affect in some way, whether it be adding it, removing it, changing it, whatever the case may be. If you look on the left, you see the clearance in percent and very, very small Ions are affected very easily by a di by dialysis, standard intermittent dialysis with very high clearances until you get a little farther out in the molecular weight size, which is down at the bottom, 2,500, 5,000, 20,000 in terms of the molecular weights. And you see that the clearance percentage of dialysis gets much, much lower. Now, if we look at the normal kidney, which is the next uh, segment to this slide, you see its clearance stays very, very, very high, way out, all the way to 35,000 Daltons, um, or 35 KD, whichever you prefer, and then drops off. So you're not supposed to be removing protein or albumin through your kidney. Uh, if you have proteinuria, obviously that's a problem, right? 
Um, so what CVBH or CRT is attempting to accomplish is, and that, go ahead and click next, is this area in between. It's more than dialysis, but less than the kidney. And we'll sort of talk about why that is and how that all of these various systems work. So go ahead to the next. So in this particular study, and this is Dr. Uh, Ronco, and this is actually from 2000, and this is in, out of the Lancet, and this is the study that I first read, which made me very interested in this therapeutic modality known as CRRT. So go ahead, next. And there is Dr. Ronco, you see the arrow over him there. Um, very, very interesting. This is back in 2000. He's from uh, Vicenza, Italy. There's his team there. Uh, he is a uh, he is a nephrologist and intensive care uh, critical care doc. Super, super nice guy. Very, very, very uh, 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 easy to talk to. Speaks probably six six languages. Uh, very bright uh, and very interesting, very interesting man to talk to. Next. So in the paper, this original paper I was talking about, they took and it's a, it basically it is an intensity uh, study is is what it was is does the intensity of the therapy. And we're going to talk about what that means here shortly, but does the intensity matter whether you do a low volume ultrafiltration? and replacement or high volume ultrafiltration and replacement. So they took these 492 patients. So next. And what I highlighted here is something that has led people here in the United States to criticize this particular paper. It's in my view, it's an excellent paper. I recommend anybody read it, that, that everyone should read it. Uh, however, if you look at what I highlighted, the mean body weight is 68, 69, and 67 in groups one, two, and three. Well, in Texas, and I would say in most of the United States, those are considered neonates. Um, we tend to be a lot bigger than that in the adult world. And so having intent, you know, having the volumes that you need with patients who are 90 kilos, 100 kilos, 110 kilos, 150 kilos, we've seen it all much, much larger patients. So this is something that I think is fair to go ahead and point out that the larger your patient or the smaller your patient, as the case may be, the harder or easier it is to achieve the type of volumes you need to have the therapy be effective. And that's something also that I'm going to discuss is how I feel it's for such a an elegantly simple process, how poorly understood and how in, in, in my perspective, um, less than optimally utilized this therapeutic modality is next. So you see here group one, group two, and group three. And group one was uh, uh, 25 mLs per kilo per hour of replacement. 
Group two was 35 milliliters per kilogram per hour for replacement. And group three was 45 milliliters per kilogram per hour of replacement. So what that means basically is if you are ultrafiltrating volume off at a rate of 25 mLs per kilogram per hour and replacing it with a fluid uh, that you want the plasma water to look like, that's considered the dose or it's considered your effluent rate or it's considered your intensity or it's considered your replacement rate. So there's a lot of different words that are used to basically describe the same thing. And so the volume of replacement in group one at 25, group two, 35, group three at 45, you can see that the survival between group one and group two was statistically different, significantly different, but between two and three was not statistically significant, but certainly there was an increase leading to the belief that low volume CVVH or CRRT was far less effective than higher volume CVVH, but we'll discuss that again as we move forward. Next. So what is it and what is it used for, that being CRRT? Well, you can use it for acute renal failure, certainly, uh, on a patient who is hemodynamically unstable, will not tolerate dialysis, is is uh, anuric or oliguric um, and uh, who is fluid positive and is having acid base and electrolyte disturbances where the kidneys are not able to work. And so you can use it in, uh, in, in uh, 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 ARF, acute renal failure, acute fluid overload. Um, I have done this on patients. In fact, there's a device. I think I show it in the in the in the uh, in the uh, 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 presentation today. I'm not 100% positive, but where it's I, it's called the Aqueducts, and it's for patients who have heart failure and who become fluid overloaded. They start having pulmonary edema. You just need to pull the plasma water off of them to relieve their symptoms. Usually you bring them into the hospital. You're going to give them dinotropes and diuretics, and you might do uh, sequential counterpulsation with those uh, uh, various uh, bands you put on the legs and the arms to try and improve cardiac function and uh, therefore renal function. Uh, but you can do it mechanically by just simply doing CVH and removing fluids. You can use intermittent dialysis and just simply remove fluid. So there's a lot of different uh, removing fluid from a patient who is fluid overloaded. I remember one time it was a post-op heart and I was in the ICU and the patient was tachypnic and uh, just miserable. And really that we were looking at intubating that patient and uh, uh, I suggested, look, well, let's just put a Merker catheter in them, in, in, in them and let me start pulling this fluid off. And we did it with just a roller pump uh, and a hemoconcentrator. I pulled off about 3,500, 4,000 cc's of fluid off of this patient. Um, and we can discuss that too, that I'm not taking that all from the intravascular space because you have a plasma refill rate, right? So as you pull volume out of the intravascular space, the extracellular volume comes back in. But this patient was intravascularly fluid overloaded. It was within 30 minutes. 
of starting the procedure on this patient. The patient was no longer tachypnic and he was asleep uh, and he felt great. And the patient never ended up uh, being reintubated and the patient went on to do just fine. And uh, that was one of my early experiences with this. This is back in probably 2002, 2003, around there. You can use it for metabolic derangements. If you have a patient who is comes in with severe hyperkalemia, it's not uncommon that you cannot get dialysis there ready to go. This is a much more simple way of approaching the pro of, of solving the problem, and it's very much faster, generally speaking. Get the patient admitted. You can do it in the emergency room. All you really need is a, uh, a, a temporary dialysis catheter inserted. Um, you can put it into the right IJ like a central line. You can put it into the femoral. You can do whatever, however you want to do it. Um, but you can treat that hyperkalemia usually much faster than you can treat it by having to call out dialysis and have them come. Because this is something most critical care nurses um, are going to be more than capable of doing. So uh, uh, you get the patient admitted to the ICU very quickly, and you can treat that long before you could ever get uh, dialysis into the hospital in many cases. You can use it for acid-based arrangements. If you have a patient who is uh, metabolically acidotic and you want, uh, you need your drips aren't working, things aren't going well, and you need a more neutral uh, pH to manage this patient, uh, you can use it for that purpose as well. Very good for clearing lactate. It's very good for uh, uh, correcting the pH. Uh, and increasing the bicarb level without causing the, you, when you're giving bicarb, bicarb drip, and, do, and, and you're giving amps of bicarb, you're going to have a hypernatremia problem. Well, you don't have that when you use CRRT because you're using a bicarb-based fluid, which has all different types of formulas. And I don't think I get into that today, but that's a different topic for a different day. But there's all kinds of different formulas that you could use of what constitutes the fluid, the bicarb level, the potassium level, a lot of different things uh, are gonna be uh, used with different fluid groups. You can use it for inflammatory mediator attenuation, and that's a provocative topic, but I'm going to show you some studies that demonstrate that, that is, in fact, accurate. Uh, but it creates a physiologic environment to relieve the stress from the body's systems. In other words, what you're trying to do is create a state of homeostasis. Uh, you're trying to create homeostasis so that your, your patient, you can manage the patient with your other tools, whether it be medications or other mechanical tools, but you're giving them the best physiologic environment to try and get them to recover from whatever their disease process is. Um, and, uh, I, you know, it just makes a lot, like I said, makes a lot of sense to me. Next. So the mechanism of action is, and there's actually four, um, and I, I didn't update my slide that I sent to you, David. So there's actually four. There's ultrafiltration, there's diffusive clearance, there's convective clearance, and there's adsorptive clearance. So those are the four. So what you see here is three, but we're going to talk about each of the four as we move forward. So go ahead next. 
So everyone is very familiar with diffusion. I, I really don't want to uh, go over too much of this because it's rudimentary, you know, uh, uh, elementary school type stuff. But you basically have a, 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 a semi-permeable membrane separating the flask. You pour something in that can cross that membrane and it will diffuse across until you get a state of neutrality where it's you have the same amount on one side as you do the other right it becomes homogeneous and this is a that's from a concentration gra uh, gradient uh okay and then in ultrafiltration you're removing water and that's from a pressure gradient so you have higher positive pressure on you see the left side with the arrow pushing down and it's forcing the fluid across this membrane with whatever is in it where the lower pressure side is and it's you see that the fluid is not balanced right so the amount the electrolyte content or the, the 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 solute content if you will that will cross that membrane will be the same on both sides but you notice that the fluid balance is different and that's a very important aspect of this it is extremely important to recognize that when you do ultrafiltration and i'm going to probably say this several times your ultrafiltrate is isoosmotic and what that means is is that if you run blood with a potassium of four through a hemoconcentrator and you measure the ultrafiltrate the potassium of the ultrafiltrate will be four if you measure the post hemoconcentrator blood that potassium will be four so you do not affect the, 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 the amount of any uh, solute or ion or cation, you're only affecting the volume because it is isoosmotic. That's very important to understand. Next. So in convection, what you see here is bulk water being forced across a membrane and if you notice in this particular this is convective clearance not just ultrafiltration where you're using a process known as solvent drag and you can see that the amount of dissolved ions in the plasma water on the right is higher than that on the left so you can remove a higher volume of, of dissolved ions using solvent drag or uh, using convective clearance or whatever you term you want to use because you're no longer depending on diffuse diffusion you're using a pressure gradient to force volume across a membrane and that's going to be different than ultrafiltration, which is just removing the water, but doing it evenly. There's no selectivity to it. Next. So here is what diffusive transport looks like, and here's what convective transport looks like. So you see the difference there uh, diagrammatically. OK. 
Okay, go ahead. And what is important, and this is the key to understanding how CRRT works. If you look up at the top, you see normal homeostasis and you have, we're just gonna say these are pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory mediators. And they're evenly distributed because you have homeostasis, right? You have in your in in our in our body, we have the battle going on continuously. We have the pro-inflammatory mediators and we have anti-inflammatory mediators, and they cancel each other out in order for us to stay homeostatically neutral. So if you took a net and scooped it in there, you would remove exactly the same number of uh, of, uh, of pro and anti-inflammatory mediators. But if you are in a cytokine storm and you have a disproportionately higher level pro-inflammatory mediators than anti-inflammatory mediators, when you use convective clearance, it's like putting that net down there and pulling it out. Well, you're going to, if there's a disproportionately higher level of one versus the other, it'd be like if you had a fish tank with uh, 20, 20 gold goldfish and one white one with a black eye, and you wanted the black one with the black eye, you stick a net in there, you're likely not going to come up with that one. You're probably going to get mostly orange ones. And that's what I'm referring to here, that disproportionately when you have a higher, an overrun uh, of pro-inflammatory mediators using convective clearance will remove because you're using this pressure across this membrane, which is not diffusive in nature, but it's going to be in uh, it's going to be a size-based thing versus a, uh, a, 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 a concentration gradient thing. Forcing them through, you're going to disproportionately remove that particular thing you want out of there if it's at a higher concentration. I hope that made any sense. Did that make any sense? Yes, Good. absolutely. Next. Thank you. So here is an example of straightforward ultrafiltration which is isoosmotic and creates the patient to be hyperoncotic. This is another very important thing to understand. If you have your patient with a sodium of 140, potassium of 5.2, and a chloride of 104, when you ultrafiltrate off a volume, whatever that volume is, just volume X, the sodium will not change, the potassium will not change, the chloride will not change, but because you're removing water and not any proteins, your albumin level will go up. Not because you're producing albumin, you just are not diluting it as much. Your total protein will go up for obvious reasons and your hematocrit will increase, but your total intravascular blood volume will go down. Now, before I get into the next section of that, because it's an important concept to, to understand, look off to the left. That's the ultrafiltrate. 
your albumin is zero, your total protein is zero, your hematocrit is zero, but your volume is whatever X is, one liter, two liters, three liters, that doesn't make any difference. And you notice your sodium, potassium, and chloride is exactly the same as that which came out of your uh, subject. So you have a plasma refill rate, and this is another very important concept to understand. If you go on bypass, especially with, let's say, somebody who has long-term chronic mitral regurgitation, they are going to be chock-a-block full of volume. Those patients are fluid overloaded. Or somebody who's lands long-standing heart failure, whatever. And you, or somebody who has been living in the ICU very sick with, uh, with hypoalbuminemia for long-standing. They come in with their albumin level of 1.3, which, by the way, is an independent indicator of mortality. If, you're, if your albumin level is 1.3, I think it's 1.3 or less, um, your, your, your predicted mortality is 100%. It's a very bad uh, finding to see that. But anyway, you have a low albumin, maybe not that low, but low, and you go on bypass and you have all this volume and your, your reservoir is at 3,500 and you start pulling volume off and you pull off two liters you went from 3500 to 1500 but you keep pulling off you you've now pulled off five liters which is more than what you had in the tank to start with and then you actually pull off seven liters and you only gave maybe 500 of cardioplegia maybe you're using microplegia you didn't give any crystalloid you're basically just giving microplegia just blood or you gave your one dose of del nido and haven't given anything else so you started off with a tank of 3500 let's say you're you're uh, in your reservoir um, you've pulled off five liters, six liters, seven liters uh, of ultrafiltrate, but your reservoir is still at 1,400. Well, mathematically, that just doesn't work out. So what's happening is as you're removing the plasma water and increasing your albumin level, your total protein level, you're increasing your COP and your chondrocytic pressure is what is the driver for bringing fluid back from the interstitial space back into the intravascular space. So a lot of these patients are not only cardio, not only intravascularly fluid overloaded, they are total body fluid overloaded. And uh, that all affects so many different things. Myocardial edema, renal, uh, 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 your kidneys being edematous, cerebral edema, um, uh, pulmonary edema, it, 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 gut edema, all of those things affect perfusion. And as you increase your, 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 the, the fluid volume of these spaces of these different organs, you reduce the perfusion to those organs. So it's very important to understand the concept of plasma refill rate. Um, that is some PRR. That's a very important thing to understand. And uh, 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 as you ultrafiltrate and raise your albumin, but here's the caveat to that. Very important in the ICU, especially for our ECMO people. Um, do not go treating a, a, a low albumin on a patient aggressively if you have no means to remove the volume from the intravascular space that gets pulled back in because you will put that patient into, into fulminant heart failure very quickly. And so it's something you have to be very aware of and very careful of, but with the right tools, it works very well. All right, next. 
And this is uh, adsorption. Adsorption is basically the uh, electrical charge of the membrane itself or the, sometimes the pore itself will cause a sticking or adsorbing of whatever material you're trying to, solute you're trying to remove. So if you have an inflammatory mediator that is too big to go through a membrane uh, a pore, let's say it's, you know, 120, you know, uh, kilodaltons, it's not going through a, uh, uh, even a high flux hemoconcentrator. And there's normal flux and high flux hemoconcentrators. We can discuss that maybe later. Um, but what can happen is with the right electrical charge, they will at, they'll, they'll adhere to the membrane surface area. Now, what'll happen is you'll see your hemoconcentrator or your, your CRT system, your set, will uh, clog very quickly. Those pores will all become clogged and you'll see filters clogging, filters clogging. So in patients who have um, a, a you know very severe cytokine storm or systemic inflammatory response syndrome severe, um, you will find that using CRRT on those patients, you will go through a lot of filters early on as you adsorptively remove these inflammatory mediators too big to go through the pores and they'll clog them all up. Um, so that's how adsorption works. Next. So here is your molecular cutoff weight in, uh, in Dalton's looking at the um, uh, various uh, hemoconcentrator sizes that are out there for uh, various different things. They're all at 65,000 Dalton's and albumin is at 66,000 or 67,000 Dalton's. So you're not gonna remove any proteins through these uh, pore sizes. Next. And we discussed sieving coefficient. Uh, you can see conventional uh, hemoconcentration or dialysis, high flux uh, uh, hemoconcentrators, as I told you, will remove a little higher. Remember that earlier graph that I showed you, you could see where the kidney was out to the, uh, to the right. Um, in this case, you see that high flux hemoconcentrator getting a little closer to it. And uh, those are designed with a little different materials and also a little bit bigger pore sizes. Just very slightly though. Next. And oh, go backwards, I'm sorry. So sieving coefficient basically is just saying how freely something goes across. So if you, just to give you an example, on the left side, a sieving coefficient of one, and that would be like potassium sodium. Uh, you do CVVH or CRR, whatever you want to call it, and you're doing it or acid-based lactate is going to have the sieving coefficient of one. So as you're adjusting, as you're using this tool, you know that that's going to change very rapidly. And what's so important about this is if you have a patient who is on CRRT and you have a lactate level of three, and you are using relatively high intensity, you're, because it has such a high sieving coefficient, 
your actual lactate level is probably three times or four times that amount because you're removing it. And it depends on, of course, the intensity of your therapy. So when you look at your numbers, when you're, when you're using CRRT and you look at what it is you're trying to change, you have to always remember what's the seeding coefficient of this. Now, if it's bilirubin, it has a seeding coefficient of about 0.6 with CRRT, standard CRRT. So it's you know just a little bit better than 50%. So 60% you're gonna be able to remove. If you see that trending downward, um, then you can, you know that you're probably making some effect of removing it, but you're going to feel a lot better about seeing a bilirubin reducing that the cause of the elevated bilirubin is resolving better than if you do it with lactate, because you have to always take into consideration you remove lactate so much easier and bilirubin at a much lower sieving coefficient. So you have to always ask, what is the sieving coefficient of whatever it is you're trying to manipulate? Next. And that just shows how uh, something small enough goes through the pore, something too big just won't go through it. And that's all there is to it. Next. So convective transport, we discussed this already. Go on to the next. Here's sieving coefficient. If you look on the, the very left graph, uh, graph, you see that solute one has a sieving coefficient of one, so S equals one, and freely comes across, no problem at all. If you look down at uh, the, the middle one, you see S equals 0.5, so that's a 50% sieving coefficient. So you see that half of what was in the originals uh, 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 fluid has come across. And if you look at solute number three, it has a sieving coefficient of zero. That would be albumin, for example. It isn't coming across at all. Next. We discussed this yesterday, or Tammy discussed this yesterday. So I do just very briefly want to go over cytic, uh, cytic, uh, the uh, cytosorb because I do think that the technologies are uh, uh, can work in harmony with each other or, or, or synergistically with each other, if you will. Um, if you look at the left, you see that it shows the active in the cytokine sweet spot um, and what those various cytokines are. Uh, if you look to the right, you see your pro-inflammatory, your anti-inflammatory cytokines, what exists in order to uh, for us to be in, again, homeostasis, and that's what it's about. Uh, next. And this is just showing you where pro-inflammatory uh, uh, inflammatory environment has outweighed the anti-inflammatory. It's kind of like a seesaw balance beam or whatever you want to call it. Next. And this is systemic inflammatory response syndrome. And, and, and what happens, you have pro-inflammatory mediators, which uh, result in cell damage. You have anti-inflammatory mediators, which is compensatory to anti-inflammatory response syndrome, otherwise known as CARS. Um, you see that you have two pathways you can take. It can either become a loop 
in which case you end up with multi-organ failure and death, or it can go to recovery and survival. So that's, again, you have the systemic inflammatory response syndrome, but you also have the compensatory anti-inflammatory response syndrome. And uh, that can be equally bad. So you have to make sure that, again, uh, if you're trying to reset something, if you go back and remember my net, my fishnet uh, uh, analogy, if you have a systemic inflammatory response and you start removing both and pro and anti-inflammatory mediators, which you will, you're going to disproportionately remove the pro-inflammatory mediators because they are at a higher concentration. And the goal is to reset the system and get everything back in balance next. And this is just a, 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 a basically a, a diagram, uh, diagrammatic uh, explanation of a cytokine storm, uh, in, uh, especially in COVID-19. I don't know that it's, uh, I mean, I think this is a theory. I'm not 100% sure that this is something that I would say is absolute, but it seems like a reasonable theory to me um, and uh, probably uh, some truth to it. But I think the point is, is that I believe the cytosorb in this particular case would be extremely beneficial. Next. And again, sort of what you see in cytokine storms, clotting, we see that, we certainly saw that in COVID shock, we certainly saw that lung injury, we certainly saw that uh, uh, gross apoptosis, we certainly saw that immune paralysis, renal failure, we certainly saw that inflammation, organ failure, infection, uh, all of these things. We, we saw all of this, I think, with COVID patients. So I think that that previous diagram certainly carries some, uh, some, some weight in terms of being valid. And I think that this is something uh, we need to, to, to take into consideration. I think the, cyto the cytosorb has not been used as much as it should. In fact, go to the next slide if you would. Um, in fact, I feel like uh, uh, the, that CRT is not used uh, it, you know, it, it, as effectively as it could. Um, you know, I've had this, I've seen this happen so many times with so many different technologies. And I do, again, I believe that CRRT is a, uh, is a, a very elegant, very effective tool if used in the right circumstances with the right patient in the right way. Uh, and I think the same thing with the cytosorb. I think that when used with the right patient in the right way, um, it is going to have a very uh, a, a positive impact. But the fact of the matter is, and this is something that may be a little provocative, um, if everyone would give me that today, um, I find that as long as CRT has existed, it is still so poorly understood, overutilized in the wrong patients, underutilized in the right patients, and poorly used. In other words, what I'm saying is I've seen so many times them running dialysis on this, just running CVBHD, which is nothing more than dialysis. It's only diffusive clearance. 
and running it at relatively low rates for long periods of time and having no real effect in a positive way on the patient. If you're going to really use CRRT, you should be using it with convective clearance. You should be at least achieving 30 cc's, I believe, minimum 25, but you're never going to have, you, you will never achieve 100% of your prescribed dose. You'll probably be at best 85% would be outstanding if you could do that. So 30 cc's per kilo per hour of replacement probably would be a lot better as a minimum. Um, are the studies conclusive in terms of having uh, better outcomes with higher intensity? They're really not, they're not conclusive. In fact, there's, there's very little evidence to support that CRRT um, is really very effective at uh, reducing mortality in the, uh, in the critically ill patient. But there's a lot of reasons for that. And I think it just comes down to the way that the, the way that the technology and the therapeutic modality is used makes an enormous difference. I can't go, I can't, I can't tell you everything about it in, in, in an hour. What I can tell you is I strongly advise my colleagues, my friends, everyone to spend the time to really learn this therapeutic modality and how you can utilize it in your practice to help your patients have the best outcomes that they can have. It's not a panacea. It shouldn't be used for everybody, but I think that you can use it in a way that very positively affects um, outcomes on patients who it will benefit. But understanding it is very important. Next. Um, here is an article, I'm just going to go very briefly through them, where uh, modified ultrafiltration does in fact lower adhesion molecules and cytokine levels following cardiopulmonary bypass. Next. And here's just basically the diagram of all of that. So we can just go ahead through these slides. Next. And you can go back and look at these studies if you ever want to. Next. Um, and here you see normothermic and hypothermic bypass, basically, uh, you know, with and without uh, modified ultrafiltration. And you really don't see any significant, there's no uh, uh, p-value that is significant uh, in terms of all of the various things that they measured, including hospital stay, ICU stay, transfusion rates, blood loss, PaO2, pulmonary in, uh, infections, atrial fib, et cetera, et cetera. Next. Here's another study, the elimination of pro-inflammatory cytokines, cytokines of pediatric cardiac surgery, analysis of ultrafiltration method and filter type was very important. They did find that polysulfone, and there are different filter media, there's AN69, uh, which I, I think is polypropylene versus polyamide, but there are different filter media, and that's something else that you need to be to recognize, the polysulfone, is the, uh, I think uh, 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 it's the one that uh, Baxter Gambro uses, and that's their eight, their uh, HF filters. They have an HF 400, 700, 1400, the various different sizes for the different size patients. Um, but it was, it was uh, found to be better at removing interleukin-6 and uh, TNF-alpha. Next. 
And this is a second study by Dr. Belomo. Also, uh, him and, and Dr. Ronco, I think they're of the same class. Um, and, and I think uh, Dr. Dr. Belomo's down in Australia, but he did another intensity article, and we can go on next. Uh, here are their various patients, and it was quite robust. It was 4,500 plus. Next. Um, actually, 37. Some were excluded. So 3,700 finally. Still a robust study. Um, and here's higher intensity versus lower intensity, and you can see they were divided up fairly well. Go on to next. And in terms of the outcomes, if you look at the p-values, you'll see, again, not much difference. Uh, you don't see uh, uh, one approach statistical significance, uh, death at 28 days, but clearly at day 90, they were equal. Next. Uh, this is Dr. Maida. He's from San Diego. Uh, randomized clinical trial of continuous versus intermittent dialysis. One of the earlier studies that was done. You can see this is 2001. Go on to the next. And you can see here your mortality associated with your uh, your Apache score and with Apache 3 score. And what's so interesting about this slide, this is a very important slide, because it illustrates the reality of what we deal with. So if your Apache 3 score is less than 79, your predicted mortality, either with or without CRRT, and if you look at the, 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 uh, the, uh, uh, trans the clear line, the, the uh, uh, box is without, that's intermittent hemodialysis, rather, and the gray box is uh, continuous renal replacement therapy. So you're comparing intermittent dialysis to CRRT. So your Apache 3 score less than 79, essentially no difference. Between 80 and 100, and if your Apache 3 score was greater than 100, your risk of mortality was higher in the CRRT group than in the intermittent dialysis group. And these are, yes, that's very common because who gets CRRT? The sicker patients. You're putting CRRT on wow. patients not early on. You're waiting until these patients are so far gone. They have an even lower, they have a, such a low chance of survival. The fact that it's only that much more is impressive, but you have to really look at the data and understand when they did this. The other thing that is very important about these studies when you read them that's so important to understand is when you're doing an intermittent dialysis study compared to a CRRT study. I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to give you this word. Let's just pretend you're in an academic center and you're studying the uh, survival benefit of intermittent versus uh, continuous uh, renal replacement therapy, intermittent dialysis versus this. And you have one of your surgeons who may be one of your more colorful surgeons has done a heart on a patient. It was a mitral valve, four vessel cabbage. Um, the patient just limped off bypass. And uh, now the patient is on two pressors and they're, uh, they're, they're going in, they have acute kidney injury and they're going into renal failure and they're going to be randomized to either intermittent hemodialysis or CRRT. And they're randomized to intermittent dialysis. But the surgeon knows full well 
that that is almost that is a death sentence if we don't put this patient on CRRT. So you put so the patient's randomized to dialysis, but they start off with CRRT. Two days later, three days later, the patient becomes stable. They transition the patient from CRRT now to intermittent dialysis because the surgeon is okay with it now because the patient is stable. Well, that patient is reported as having been randomized to intermittent dialysis. There's no way to actually grade that they were originally started in CRT. So the problem with all of these studies is that the amount of anecdotal evidence that exists that demonstrate clearly CRRT is a far superior way of managing either acute renal failure, fluid overload, uh, metabolic derangements, electrolyte derangements, acid-base derangements, so much better. Anecdotally, the evidence is overwhelming. However, the evidence comparing it to intermittent dialysis, mostly in my opinion, because of poor study design, isn't there. And that's a reality. Hmm. Next. So here he talks about in conclusion, actually Dr. Maida points out that the, uh, uh, the mortality among patients treated with CRRT, although this difference was best explained by more severe illness in the CRRT group, despite randomization. So keep that in mind. He points that out in his own conclusions. You can again read this study. It's a very good study. Next. And those are the three names you really want to look at. Yeah, I know. It's a great way for, great way for me to take a pause. Everybody, anybody, anybody need some coffee? Um, so I think Dr. Ronco, Dr. Belomo, and Dr. Meta. If you look those people up uh, at, and, and in your search query and CRRT, you're going to find an awful lot of, uh, of data. Uh, that they have put out. And you can also then find other people that have referenced them. Um, there's another fella in Pittsburgh, and I can't remember his name now to save my life. But there's there's been a lot of work done in this field, and I think it's such an interesting field. But this is a perfect example. This lady here is clearly fluid overloaded. And you can fix this. If you don't fix this, she's not going to survive. There's no way she's going to be able to get through this. Um, this is something that, and if you try doing intermittent dialysis, you're trying to remove fluid over the course of a short period of time. And if the patient is on pressors and inotropes and not doing well, intermittent dialysis gets okay. interrupted quite frequently because the patient becomes too hemodynamically unstable. In fact, there's an acronym, TSTD. And that's something that you will find in a lot of charts on patients that are in this particular circumstance. And that stands for too sick to dialyze. And that's not something that's uncommon. I've seen that many times. Next. We talked about the site. Uh, you did this yesterday, so I won't really uh, uh, belabor it too much. But you see the treatment with the cytosorb, how you're going from a pr uh, pro and anti-inflammatory uh, 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 discordance and then bringing them back together again for early back to homeostatic balance. Yeah. Next. 
and you can, uh, and, and for those of you who are not familiar with the, the dialysis world, the access is red, not blue. Right. Okay, so when you're looking at this, the very bottom right, you see a red line coming out, red, red uh, clamp thing and the connector, it's red. That is your access. It goes out, goes through the pump, goes through the hemoconcentrator, comes out of the hemoconcentrator where you could do CRRT therapy into the cytosorb for a second uh, different treatment uh, and then back to the patient, which is the blue. And the reason it's blue is because usually hemoconcentrated blood is darker than uh, pre-concentrated blood. That's why there's a difference. Very difficult for, for perfusionists because it's access backwards. is blue and return is red. It's always backwards, yes. And it confuses the heck out of me, but you, you gotta be aware of it. Next. So you can hemoconcentrate first. You can cytosorb first. You can go through the cytosorb. Then you can do CRRT using your hemoconcentrator. And the hemoconcentrator, I don't have the whole circuit on there, but it's just sufficient enough to understand that you can do CR, you can do ultrafiltration. You can do whatever you wanna do. This can be hooked into your, your bypass circuit. Next. And here it just shows it uh, on its own coming out. Actually, this is coming out of the heart-lung machine. And uh, what you see is the cytosorb filter uh, going through. And then it's previous to the arterial line or the oxygenator. I guess that's what that is because you're going from blue to red or purple to red. So I'm assuming that's what that diagram is showing. It's cytosorbs. So you can hook it into your recirc line on your oxygenator, basically, is I think what it's showing. No, it has to be, just real quick for clarification, it has to be on main flow lines anytime you're on ECMO or um, uh, bypass. So you'll see that the access is coming off pre-pump, but it is off your main uh, drainage line. And then it's, when it's being returned, it, it is back into your main return line, so not off a recirc line. So you see that? Say that again. Okay, so when you have it integrated into an ECMO circuit or, or a bypass circuit, it must be on the main line. So, for example, on this one, your access is coming off of your right. three-eighths line on Raise. your pump. Joe, do you have me? Oh, there. Okay, I froze. Oh, okay. I was frozen. Okay, can I, you hear I me? I missed a lot of that. Okay, I, I just... Now, so I heard you for, were doing the main line. Can you, can you do that one more time? Sure. So anytime you're putting the cytosorb into either an ECMO circuit or um, just normal bypass circuit, they're very clear that they want the access and the return of the cytosorb lines into your main lines. So for example, on this diagram, mm -hmm. your access is coming off of your, uh, let's say three eighths inch line that would be going into your pump, uh, centrifugal pump. You'll see it's accessing there. So it's not off a recirc line. It is off your main blood flow lines. And then running through the cytosorb um, cartridge, and then it, when it's being returned, it's back into your return line that is also a main return line so it would really mm -hmm. be um so you don't want to do the you're not going to do the reservoir um you can do the reservoir but this happens to be an ecmo circuit so you don't have a reservoir right okay. 
but you would right. be returning back to a, a reservoir if you were doing it that way. But the point of it is, is that you are, um, or actually, I just said that completely backwards, right? So they're returning, they're drawing from the, um, they're drawing from the, uh, the positive Our, side. The yeah, the positive side, and then returning to the negative. Right. But the point of it is, right. is it's not off a recirc line. I think it probably gotcha. needs the, the the pressures to be able to pull, um, uh, mm -hmm. push through the filter. So that that's the point of that one. Okay, that makes sense. So you've got a more positive pressure just before the oxygenator right. going. So it's going from the top top left right past the place where you see the bubbles yes. coming up then left then down then right then up and around back to the negative right. side of the centrifugal pump so if you have your your cytosorb mounted like that then you are going to be always um putting your access at the bottom of the filter and then it's coming up through the top and that's your return just like how you would do a uh, hemoconcentrator that we're used to in a bypass circuit yeah quick question because I, I didn't hear this yesterday are there because of course we're doing a lot of ECMO now with uh, reduced anticoagulation and sometimes no anticoagulation mm -hmm. um, what are the considerations when you try to do this what you, um, Cytosorb recommends 160 to around 200 ACT. Okay, so we do need, so that would be, that would be about a PTT of one and a half uh, right. or so times baseline. Okay, mm -hmm, fair enough. Mm -hmm. Okay, next. Ah, there you go. It's all about being balanced. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. Um, any, uh, any questions? Uh, we hear you both. Okay, thank you. Uh, real good point. Somebody said something nice. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Modima Rose, thank you. Well, we did have a question uh, that well, came up yesterday that actually I wasn't, I didn't have the answer to, and I meant to look it up last night, I forgot. Mm -hmm. So maybe you know. Is Cytosorb red, readily available here in the United States? I believe so. I do believe so. Um, I think that uh, COVID, uh, they got, I don't think it was it before COVID, but I think COVID, they got an emergency release. And so that's, that's uh, how we got it over here. It. We hadn't had it before, correct? Because John and I were just talking about correct. how little we've seen it, but that how mm -hmm. we thought it was mm -hmm. pretty useful technology. Mm -hmm. So he's only come across I it think once. It is too. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think it is too. I think that... I think all of these different technologies are, um, again, and I'm not trying to be uh, disrespectful to any of my colleagues uh, or, uh, or people that I work with, medical teams that I work with, but I think that uh, uh, when you are not, it's much like ECMO, CRT, Cytosorb, all of these things, when you're not selective with who you use it on, and you overuse it and you imbalance the cost benefit ratio because we are in a business and it's a reality with hospitals. Um, it a lot of it's not that dissimilar to God, I hate to say this because I was going to raise your eyebrow, but pixie dust, what I consider pixie dust. OK, you know what I'm talking about um, when you overuse it, 
you lose it well very it, frequently and right and because they start looking at the benefits of it versus the cost and mm -hmm. When you're overusing something, you're not going to have, or you're using it, overuse maybe isn't the right word, but when you're using it in not the appropriate um, beneficial mm -hmm. uh, patients that, that it's going to benefit patients, then, um, you know, you change your statistical data on when it is successful, mm -hmm. right? Just like looking at that I study mm -hmm. about the CRT versus the intermittent dialysis. I mean, I had never even mm -hmm. occurred to me that you're right. We're using CRT usually at the end of the line on the patients that are the sickest because they can't tolerate mm -hmm. dialysis. So, of course, they're going to be disproportionate, um, have a disproportionately higher mortality rate, right? Yes, yes. Very free. That's the, my point. And when you yeah. underdose it, you know, you're just not using it to its optimal. But, the, the, but at the same time, the studies are so difficult to design they are. and so difficult to actually run that your your evidence is poor that well, it has any real benefit do you, and it, that's just a harsh reality it reminds me of and it's escaping me right now what did we do um i can't remember the name of that scoring system that we did where every single, gosh, it's just escaping me. But it looks like for designed, uh, study designs like these, um, that you would need a, a more complex scoring system of the actual patient's um, independent uh, morbidities and mortalities, and then factor that into um, whether uh, the the results of the dialysis and the CRT, because then you're going to really have a better idea that the patients that are on CRT are likely sicker. So it would maybe mm -hmm. even the playing field a little bit when you're comparing um, mortalities and survivals mm -hmm. um, on those patients. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Because it obviously, makes perfectly good sense. Yeah. You can't just look at they survived or they didn't, not with those patients, because you're not going to use the same therapies for them. You know, that's like looking Correct. at an ECMO patient and a vent patient and then deciding which ones survived more. Well, the ECMO patients are sicker, you know, so they're going to have yes, a higher mortality rate. They got on ECMO. Right. Right, exactly. Right. Same reason right. why you'd likely use CRT on a patient. They're sicker. They can't tolerate the mm -hmm. other thing. Yeah. There was another point that I wanted to make, um, and those are all very good points, Tammy. There's another point that I wanted to make, and that has to do with not only using the therapy too late, but you also have to take into consideration using anything too early. Mm -hmm. And if you, yeah, so I've said many times, if you took, if I put you on ECMO right now, you would not appreciate it one bit you're right. going to have a significant inflammatory response. Um, it potentially could hurt you. It could potentially kill you. Um, and that is the same thing with CRRT. Any, even Cytosorb, any extracorporeal therapy where you're taking blood and exposing it to a, another foreign surface is not independent of a need 
beneficial for you. It is the opposite of that. It can harm you. In fact, likely will. But I think that with, for example, patients on ECMO, once you have made a decision to put a patient on ECMO, at that point, that becomes the highest inflammatory uh, 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 stimulus that you have. Adding CRRT to that is trivial. If you have a patient who you have on cardiopulmonary bypass and they have severe inflammatory response and you're using the cytosorb, again, your largest stimulus is the pump. So the pump is really the, 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 the worst offender of the inflammatory process. Right. Having the cytosorb integrated into that is going to be insignificant. But doing these things independently for different reasons, you have to make sure that it the benefit will outweigh the risk, whether it be the risk of interacting with the foreign surface, whether it be coagulation, whether it be infection, all of the various reasons that you have to be concerned anytime that you're going to do something extracorporeally uh, with the patient's blood. Joe, we have a comment from YouTube. I'm not sure if you're monitoring that, but um, the uh, magic let me know. The question, uh, we've got some uh, compliments, good points, et cetera, but um, <clears throat> how do you control with a declining patient was the question. How do I control what specifically? I'm not sure. Um, maybe uh, we're talking about, I'm assuming we're relating to um, CRRT. Could you follow up with more specific question, please? Uh, and I'm speaking to Modima Rose, who uh, was commenting there, and mm -hmm. we'll come back to you yeah. in just a moment. Um, but you're right, yeah, Joe. I just need you a know, more specific question. Yeah, it's not like uh, you can't just try these therapies out um, on patients that don't need them. There are risks uh, associated right. with all of them. And again, our body, if our body is at homostasis and then we put something to change that, then our body is not going to respond to it uh, well, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of Agreed. the whole point. Yeah. Agreed. Um, um, in terms of scientific studies and analysis, control groups. I got you. Okay. Oh, so, I see. So, I see. you know, it is it it is a uh, it is a battle royale. I mean, it, it's something that uh, I have been confronted with many many times. I can tell you that I anecdotally, I can tell you that I have seen patients who were severely acidemic, um, massively fluid overloaded, had uh, profound systemic inflammatory response syndrome where we have used CVVH and I have seen remarkable turnarounds in relatively short periods of time. But it was done very well and it was, I have to say, even compared to some of the studies that I've seen, aggressively, more aggressive than some of the stuff that I saw. Um, now, certainly, you know, more intensity does not necessarily equal better outcomes. If you need that much intensity, where what the machine, one machine can do, adding a second machine is not of the same thing, is not going to necessarily improve anything. But 
being, you know, managing the published evidence, especially when much of the discussion points out in many of these studies the way this particular uh, study protocol was designed and the authors criticizing their own work in not showing evidentiary uh, benefit where they discussed the anecdotal evidence and how they what they actually saw compared to what the evidence actually showed um, I think is very very important and uh, essentially I think if you go on ECMO, I know that some of uh, my co uh, colleagues disagree with me. I think if you put a patient on ECMO, if you're going to put a patient on ECMO, then you should put them on CRRT. And you don't have to do high intensity, but I think at least in the early phases, you're going to have some attenuation of the inflammatory response that comes with the interaction of the way the patient interacts with the circuit in that mm -hmm. early period of time and reduce those problems that you see later on. You can transition them off, but I think having it immediately upon initiation of ECMO and using it to prevent problems from occurring, will a study ever be able to be done to demonstrate that? No. But no. you know, at the end of the day, we do. If we if if we do nothing except that that's based only in evidence, we will never be practicing. Uh, uh, we won't be practicing medicine at that point in time. So I don't know if that answers the question. Uh, the patient is. Uh, if if we have results uh, of evidence that show uh, that there's really no benefit, as long as it's not showing harm. Um, then I would say that um, in that study with Meta, for example, it did show a higher mortality associated with CDDH, but clearly it was because they were putting it on the patients right. who were not, the sickest. Right, not because it was so you would expect harmful. That. Right. Right. You would um, have to actually look and see what the, what the, what the predicted mortality was for right. those groups and say, okay, this group right. should have had this mortality, but really it was that. Right, you have um, to have independent and, uh, scoring system benefit. for that, exactly. We have you one would. more question. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure, sure that we're gonna be able to answer this, but we have a question. Which is the best ECMO machine, Rotoflow 2 versus Xenos? And I haven't used either <laughs> I one. Have no, I, have, I, have no, I have no idea. We um, use, um, we use a different platform down here, so. I don't know Xenos. I do know Rotaflow. We all know Rotaflow. Okay, mm -hmm. so I'll put it this way. And you know, I don't really want to be. I, do, I don't want to be unkind to anyone. But I can't imagine Xenos could be any worse. I don't know if that would be reasonable because if you remember what we went through it. Uh, Did at we that have a Rotaflow too, or we had something they were older? Rotoflow, they were no, they were Rotaflow twos. Yeah, I don't. Well, then I do idea. have a little experience I, I would, with that. <laughs> that those do, were actually. right. Yeah, actually, I do. Uh, you know, during our one of our surges, we were trying to find additional ECMO platforms, and um, that's what we were able to acquire. And it was a little more complex than what I'm used to, as far as um, just the the overall setup. Um, we use a, a different platform that's very uh, simple. 
and uh, that just easy to uh, put together. And uh, I, I would say I probably lean towards simplicity when it comes to those things. I know there's some complex devices out there that are very good, but we have gotten quite used to um, minimal, uh, minimal, uh, I guess you could say, steps in to be able to get these patients on ECMO. And I found the Rotoflow to be a little complex, honestly. Remembering a so lot of steps. <laughs> if they want to see our, if you want to see our system, uh, uh, join in on Friday. Yep. Because that's going to be simulation day. Oh, and we're gonna I'm going to have to excuse four, myself for just a moment. I'm sorry. No problem. Four really cool simulations. Okay. So, well, I think I'm wrapped up, guys. I, I think. Uh, well, I want Tammy to. Is Tammy going to be long? Because I can have her uh, spin the wheel. Anybody know? David, magic. Yeah, she's on the phone, Ron. No, not Joe. She may be a few minutes. She's on the phone? You think she'll be a few minutes? Because I could wrap up. Oh, you, you want to wrap magic, up or what do you want to do? Magic is asking to check the, for you to check the YouTube chat. Oh, okay. Let me see. Sounds are exactly, yes, thank you. Short supply effects quality of manufacturing that is very true and thank you i wish you know medima you need to send us uh you need to send us some information to join our, our thing there's a lot of nice chats we appreciate it so very much thank you um so is tammy coming back or yep i'm back she is there you are okay. sorry you want to spin the wheel uh, yeah, I'd Modima, love to spin the wheel. Uh, I think we should spin the. I think we need to spin the wheel for Modima. Okay, sounds great. Let's so Modima, see. you need to send, you need to send us an email to uh, uh, contact at perfusioneducation.com, and we need your physical mailing address because Magic. you're about to win something. Um, yes, on Friday we will be live streaming. Uh, it's, uh, I can tell you, it's 1957. Oh, Tammy. thanks. Okay, got it. Sure. I might need okay, a little help. Tammy, we're frozen again. Okay. We're frozen, guys. Here. Sorry. I'm frozen. No, that's all Yes, Modima, if you can hear me, uh, we will be live streaming um, uh, yep. later in the week on Friday. Oh, share the screen. Hold Drop on, guys. I'm frozen. Tell him it's only, he's only, he, yeah, text him so he'll stop saying I'm frozen. Oh, okay. Um, I need to share the screen. Yep, screen mirroring. Okay, got it. It's working. So we will spin the wheel. All right. We got it up. All right, so this is for Modima Rose for those uh, comments and questions. We are spinning for a prize and hopefully not extra call for you. Nobody wants extra call. Okay, looks like you won a t-shirt. So if you'll just let Yay. us know. Um, our production staff will reach out to you and let us know how we can send it to you and uh, your preferred size, and we will get a T-shirt out to you.
Well, if I can just go ahead and uh, close well, this out here. The, can you show her the t? Can you show her the t-shirt that it says what it says? Oh, well, uh, we'll have to get that. So just a moment. So I'll, I'll wrap us up a little bit while we're waiting on that. So tomorrow we will be back here in the studio. I'll still be alone. Joe will be joining us remotely, but we will have the Vanderbilt Faculty Forum starting at 7 a.m. So please join us for that for PerfWeb 75 Day 3. This is what the t-shirt looks like. Uh, if we could, do we have it now? Yep, it says, Perfusion, we give your heart a rest. And we've got them in a few colors, I think, and a few sizes. So let us know your preferred size, and we will get that mailed out to you. Well, Joe, that was excellent. an excellent presentation on CRRT. Thank Thanks you. for that. And we are looking forward to what Vanderbilt will be presenting tomorrow. And then don't forget on Thursday at 3 o'clock, we will have day four with John Ingram's Knowledge Nuggets about separate septic shock. And then Friday at 8 a.m. again, we will be doing the ECMO simulations. Joe will be back in studio and be leading those with the new device we have, the Eigenflow. So we hope you're able to join us. Excellent. And thanks so much for spending a little bit of your morning with us. Joe, you have any final thoughts? Tammy, I don't. Tammy, all I can tell you is you are a natural. And thank you so very much for doing this. You have really <laughs> made my life a lot easier. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, we wish everyone a wonderful day. And we'll see you tomorrow.